Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Now, we're in week four of a series called People Get Ready. This is the last message series of 2020, the last message series in our book, on our year-long series called The Jesus Project, which is focused on the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to look at a story found in Luke chapter 19, if you want to turn there, Luke chapter 19. What I want to help you do is to get ready now to be trusted with even greater things in heaven someday. The principled kind of truth around this is this, it's to leverage what is temporary for what will be eternal. So much, I've used this sentence a couple of times during the Jesus Project teaching because so much of what Jesus taught was to help us to move beyond the temporary, which we are heavily invested in, to be able to use what is temporary for what will be eternal and last forever. So we want to take a look at this. The context is this. Jesus is about to head up into Jerusalem for the very last time. He's about to have the triumphal entry, the trial, uh, his death, his resurrection. That's about to happen. He's headed in there, and he's with a large crowd, and he stops with this crowd. And here's what it says, picking it up in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. He says, the, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story. And say this out loud with, you, with me, if you would. To correct the impression that the kingdom of God will begin right away. Jesus is really concerned that you and I have the correct impression over and over about who he is. He'd ask his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And correct the impression about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a little phrase that Jesus uses over and over throughout the Gospels to describe. It harkens back to the creation narrative. Back when all of creation was under the authority of God and, and there, there was a wholeness before sin entered the world and, and we are all under his authority and kingship and things ran that way. And so the kingdom of God was an invitation into a different orientation, a different perspective, a different set of values, a different life. And that's the invitation for you and I. And he wanted to correct the impression about the timing of the kingdom of God here. See, what he's trying to do is help the crowd to reposition their expectations. Expectations are, that's a big word, right? Expectations is really what leads to a lot of the pain and the difficulty that you face in this life. See, a lot of the pain that we experience in life is because of misplaced expectations, unclear expectations, unfulfilled expectations. You know, uh, I've been on staff teams as long as I can remember. I've been a staff member. I've been leading staff teams, all of those things. I've noticed whether it's in churches or in other employment situations, any employee problems usually have to deal with expectations. Someone expects this. Someone else is expecting this. There's a gap. And it leads to a lot of misunderstandings and miscommunication. Listen, a lot of the relational difficulties you experience have to do with expectations. A lot of the conflict we experience in life is because we're expecting this, somebody else is expecting this, 
We don't meet, meet each other, and all of a sudden there's a little disappointment. Expectations are really important. Now, the crowd that was following Jesus had some strong expectations. They had, just as the crowd that's watching right now, you have expectations. You have expectations of the person of Jesus. You have expectations on our, on our church, One Church TO. You have expectations even about this gathering. And I want to tell you, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have expectations. But how you set them is really important. I mean, if you're expecting this from our church and we deliver that, there's going to be disappointment. And, you know, people get disappointed because they came in expecting this and, and you know, the reality is we're more here. Uh, equally, if you expect this from our church or this gathering and we come in here, you know, you feel filled with gratitude. Whenever you feel like ex expectations are being exceeded, there's usually an overwhelming feeling of gratitude. It, it's like this. I, I probably told you this story at One Church TO, but it was a neat moment a couple of years ago. A pastor in Victoria, BC, his name's Andy, he's a friend of mine, uh, texted me, called me, he said, I'm in Toronto for a conference, and he's a big Raptors fan, as I am. And he said, can you get tickets to the Raptors game? I didn't really have any Toronto Raptor connections, uh, but my brother Malcolm is in the finance industry, and he was able to get me a couple tickets. So we're walking towards the Scotiabank Center. We see some other pastors from across the country that are in for the same conference. And they're waving, we got tickets, we got tickets. And they're in the upper bowl, you know, where most of my colleagues would be. That's where we are. But we walk into the arena and the ushers say, oh, no, no, you're further down. And we are in the middle section and we get to the ushers and they say, no, 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 you're further down. In fact, we got, my brother got me the seats right behind Drake, right on the floor. And in fact, you know, we, we, we saw Jack Armstrong. We met all the media guys there. They were all next to us. Nick Nurse, the coach of the Raptors. I mean, he was as close as you and me right now. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, the new $85 million contract he just signed. He was, I could have touched him when he was being interviewed here. I yelled, hi, Fred, the whole game. Fred, Fred. You know, Fred didn't even look at me. He didn't even acknowledge me. I mean, I don't like Fred now, but I, I love that he's on the Raptors. But expectations are interesting. If I had said to Andy, my friend, listen, I've gotten seats, but they're in the top, they're in the uh, outside area of the arena, just the top level. You know, if we went into the game, he'd be happy because we got into the game. He'd be like, man, this is a live Raptor game. This is awesome. But if I had told him I've got seats on the main floor, but I took him to the upper bowl. He'd be disappointed because his expectation would have been like, I thought we were going to be right next to the team. We're, we're like a thousand feet away from them. But, but you know, expectations shape our reality. And it's so true about the Christian experience. C.S. Lewis picks up on it. And he says it this way. If you're shown a hotel room, you've been told is the honeymoon suite. Your expectations will be high. If there's no plush carpet, spa, or champagne, you're going to be disappointed. Listen to what he says. On the other hand, if you've been told before the door opens that it's a jail cell, you'll be delighted to find even the modest comforts. See, friends, as Christians, I think we're often taught to expect the honeymoon sweet experience in life. And it's really hard. That when you realize that you journey through the doorway of life, that your faith can't insulate you from the heartache and the, and the hardship of life. 
You know, if you expect by coming to Jesus, it's going to be like a honeymoon suite. This is why a lot of people in their faith journey get so disappointed. Some people even lose their faith because they expected this, but they experienced this. See, sometimes it's not that we need to lower our expectations. We need to find our expectations in what Jesus says and what he offers. And so I want to ask you this question. Beginning of the message, because we're going to end with this. What do you expect from Jesus? Jump into the chat room. You know, I don't know what you expect from Jesus. I know this. Over 28 years of pastoring, I've been pastoring longer than some of you have been alive. Over 28 years plus of pastoring, I've noticed that every Christian makes a couple of mistakes when it comes to setting expectations. The number one area I notice Christians make a mistake is they expect too little of Jesus. Just too little of Jesus. You see, I've watched people make their Christian experience about comfort, about safety and blessing. Way too little expectation of Jesus. Now, it's natural that we kind of want those things, isn't it? You know, a lot of us grabbed hold of the hand of Jesus because we are in great places of discomfort and difficulty. And so we found a place of comfort and rest in him. And that's a great thing. But we build a spirituality around like, Jesus, comfort me. Jesus, keep us safe from. Jesus, bless us. And you know what we're doing right there? We are in taking onto ourselves muted expectations of Jesus. Because here's the thing. If, if that's your orientation spiritually about comfort, safety, uh, about blessing, the problem is, is you'll never experience the joy of the adventure of following Jesus. Listen, Jesus invites you into a way of life that is headed towards choppy waters. It's an adventure to follow Jesus. And the, some people, the moment they feel the choppy waters, the, the unsettledness of just living counter values in different kingdoms, the kingdom of God values in the kingdom of this world, all of a sudden you, you, you want the safety, you want the blessing, you want the comfort. And we begin to have these muted expectations we miss out. See, friends, the reality is Jesus is way more concerned about your transformation than he is your comfort. You know, gut check here. When was the last time that you significantly leveled up in your faith and grew through comfort? You don't grow in comfort. You grow with challenge. And many of us in our spiritual lives, we do everything we can to avoid challenge. We don't want challenge, we want comfort. And we build a spirituality that as long as we feel comfortable, this is how a lot of Christians grab hold of methods and preferences instead of the mission. Because that's about your comfort. The mission is about, your ch about being challenged. And Jesus invites us. He's more concerned about transformation in your life than he is about comfortable. So transformation is part of it. Listen, Jesus is less concerned about keeping you safe as he is concerned about making you dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. That every time you wake up, every place you go, you bring the kingdom of God with you, that the kingdom of darkness is, they're scared of you, not you scared of them. 
See, safety is found. It's almost an old expression, the best defense is a good offense. It's as we do the work of the Lord, it doesn't mean that hardships we can avoid. It's not that difficulties won't come looking for us, but we know when we're in his mission and in his will, we can have such security in knowing he has us there. So it's, it's not just about comfort, it's not just about safety, and it's certainly not just about blessing, because I don't think Jesus is as concerned about blessing you is he, as he is concerned about you being a blessing to others. You see, when I begin to bless others in my life, I'm acting like Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus loves to bless people as they're blessing others. If it's just about you, and this is why a lot of people, they expect way too little of Jesus. So they pray small prayers. And what I mean by small prayers, it's just prayers for themselves and the, the immediate people that they love. They're not praying the big prayers about his kingdom come, his will be done on earth that, is, that it is in heaven. You know, they, they're taking easy steps instead of the big steps, taking the risks that you and I have the opportunity to spend our one and only lives here on earth investing in what will last forever. The second area I noticed with expectations, and certainly the crowd in Luke chapter 19 embodied this, is they expect Jesus to stay on their schedule. Have you ever been like that? <laughs> you ever uh, thought a lot of disappointment for Christians is they'll pray and they have an expectation of a scheduled arrival point where Jesus is going to break in and everything changes. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this, Jesus' schedule is better than your schedule, Period. But you also know this, Jesus' schedule is often not around the timing you had in mind. And that means you, it forces you to places where you need to trust God. And this crowd is there. This crowd is there. They have a muted expectation of Jesus. They expect Jesus to free them from the Roman Empire. It's very selfish, actually. Free us from what is immediately oppressing us. But Jesus has much, he's going to exceed their expectations. He's not just about redeeming Israel. He wants to redeem all his creation, all of it. And then they have a timing. They have an agenda. They think because it's Passover, Jesus is headed into Jerusalem on the back of all these miracles and Lazarus being risen from the grave. They expect that he's going to now ascend the throne, turn over the Romans. It's going to be a massive turning point. And on the back of that, Jesus tells them a parable. Now, I've never taught on this parable. I've never taught on this parable. And you'll probably see why in a moment. But this is a really important one for us in Luke chapter 19. And like all of Jesus' parable, he draws from the realm of the familiar to help his listeners understand the realm of the unfamiliar. And this parable's no different. He draws on a historical event that was in Jesus' era and moment that everyone in the crowd would have known of in order to help them understand something they might not understand. So let me read some of it, picking it up in verse 12 of Luke chapter 19. A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver. And a pound of silver would be worth about $10,000 today. Saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want him to be our king. 
After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had been given the money, and he wanted to find out what their profits were. Now, when Jesus would have been telling this story, everyone listening in the crowd would have been going like, oh, I know this story. They would have been very familiar with the story because the story is rooted in an event that actually happened uh, a few years before. See, Herod the Great was the puppet king, the tetriarch of Palestine at the time. Rome had appointed him to kind of control that region. And when he died in 4 BC, he left seven different wills behind. So there was a little bit of a debate over who should inherit the kingdom. So three of his sons went to Rome to fight for part of the kingdom. And their sons' names were Herod Antipas. And if you read the Gospels, you'll know that name because uh, Herod Antipas had the most interactions with Jesus in the gospel because he ruled the region where Jesus was born and where he ministered most of the time, the area of Galilee. Just north of him would have been Herod Philip. And Herod Philip's mentioned a couple times in scripture. And Jesus once went to Caesarea Philippi, which would have been in his kingdom. But the story that Jesus is referencing is actually about Herod Archelaus. Now, Archelaus was one of Herod's son, and he was not well-liked. He was a dangerous man. He went off to Rome to kind of get as much of the pie as he could, and he got Judea, he got, he got Jerusalem, he got the prize parts of the kingdom. And it, it, nobody liked him in Israel because he had a massive palace in Jericho he had built, but his men had slaughtered 3,000 Jews during Passover in Jerusalem, and the people hated them. So historically, they sent off a delegation of 50 of the leaders of Israel at that time to petition Caesar not to make Archelaus the king, just like in this little parable Jesus is telling. But Caesar being Caesar, doesn't listen to him. They appoint Archelaus king, and when he returns... He hears about these 50 people who left to oppose him being king. So he said he brought them before him and he had them executed. It's a very dark story, actually, historically. And Jesus is using something very familiar to help people understand what might be unfamiliar. So we pick up the rest of the story in verse 16. And let me paraphrase some of it. So when the king returns, he, he, the nobleman went off. He became the king. He was appointed king. He came back. And he brought his servants that he had given resources to, to invest before him, to give an account, to see how much they made profit. So the first one came, and, and he, he reported a, a 10 times return. You know, that, that he, he had made a profit 10 times the amount that was originally given to him. And the king was very impressed. And the king used words that are very familiar in scripture. He said, well done, well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. So you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. And so, you know, I'm sure that servant had a good day. He had invested that pound of silver and he, he had made a tenfold return. And in turn, what he had used in this moment, but when the king was away, when the king returned, he got even more. And then the next servant in line came and he reported a five-fold return, five times what he had originally been given. And here's the words of the king again. He said, well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. You notice the trend here? How they used what they were given then determined what they would be given when the king entered his kingdom, when he came back as king. 
Then the third servant came. And the third servant king came and he didn't have a return. He just gave back the original pound of silver. He said, listen, I, I just hid it under my bed. I just, I just hid it there. I didn't invest it, but I didn't steal it. I'm bringing it back. And the king says this, you wicked servant, you wicked servant. Why? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is clearly showing his listeners something about uh, uh, the amount that each of us gets in this life. You know, none of us gets the same amount in this life, do we? You know, we don't all have the same amount of talent. We just don't. You know this, uh, we don't all have the same amount of energy. We don't have the same amount of health. We don't have the same amount of money. We don't have the same amount of drive. We don't have the same amount of everything. I'm going to help a lot of you untangle yourself in this moment and maybe even free yourself. Because some of you may even need to say this out loud with me. Here, say this with me. I'm not responsible for what you got. I'm responsible for what I got. I'm not responsible for what you got, whether you got 10 times what I've got or five times what I got or two times or what my son's got or what my spouse has or, or what my girlfriend, boyfriend has, whatever. I'm not responsible for that, but I am responsible for what I've been entrusted with. Now, I think a lot of Christians end up like this third servant because they're so busy seeing what other people had, whether it's 10 times as much or five times as much, that they don't leverage the little, whatever it might be, that God has placed in their hands. So let me ask this question. What has God placed in your hands? You're not responsible for what someone else got, but you are responsible for what you got. You see, in the story, notice in the story, while the king is away, and Jesus is about to go away. He's about to go to an even greater empire, kingdom of God, kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to rule and reign on the throne. And he promises he's going to return again someday, just like this king does in this parable. But as he leaves and as he's left all of us, as, uh, uh, he's left his spirit with us, but he's also given us things. He's given some of you great health and strength and energy and intellect and abilities, gifts of hospitality and mercy, gifts of communication and being able to talk to people and encourage people. Some of you are so gifted at prayer. He's given you many things. He's given some of you great resources in this life. And, and how we use them when he returns someday, he's going to ask, how did you use this? In other words, those that leveraged what they had for his kingdom were rewarded in this parable. And those who did not were punished. Those who leveraged what God had given them, or what the king had given them to build the kingdom were rewarded. And those who didn't, they were punished in the story. You know, it's interesting. If you read the context, and I hope you read uh, this passage later on this week with your, for yourself, uh, to the, the king in this parable says to the rest of the servants, take away that pound of silver from the man who had no return on investment and give it to the guy who has 10 times the amount. And they don't like this. In fact, they say this. They say, but master, he already has 10 pounds. Can't you hear it? It's almost like a toddler. Hey, that's not fair, Jesus. That's not fair, King. This guy already has 10 times as much. He's over 10 cities. Why would you take the pound of silver? This guy only has one pound of silver. That's not fair. Can you say that's not fair? 
You see, here, this is really important. This idea of fairness in this life really determines and shapes and molds a lot of what we believe in this life. In the beginning, the world, when God created the world and it was running as he intended it to run, it was completely fair. The Garden of Eden was, had a fair and equal opportunity and lot in life. Everyone did. Everyone in the Garden of Eden. That's why as a follower of Jesus, things should disturb me. They really should disturb me when I see inequality in this world, whether it's sexism, ageism, racism, anything that would denigrate others and put others as superior to others, any system that keeps people poor or anything, all those things should really bother me. Why? Because the residue of the kingdom of God as God created it to be is in you and me. He created this world to be incredibly, totally equal opportunity and fair that everyone would have an equal lot in this life. And of course, that changed. Mankind changed that, not God. Mankind goofed that up and the ultimate fair system and environment was changed forever. And the Bible says when sin entered this world with Ad, through Adam and Eve, and each of us have participated in that, that fairness, life became not fair. So let's get that out of our system right now. I wonder if you could just take a deep breath. And say with me, life's not fair. It's just not fair. I mean, we all know that. Life's not fair academically. Life's not fair athletically. Life is not fair in terms of our looks, our height. Life is not fair with, when it comes to health. It's not fair financially. It's not fair professionally. It's not fair relationally. It's not fair sexually. It's not fair even geographically. Some people are born into great places of privilege. They didn't deserve it. They were born into it. And other people born into more challenging circumstances. Life is not fair. And Jesus is trying to help us understand how to measure life. He says this in verse 26. He says, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. Now, look at that, what they are given. Again, not what someone else is given, what you've been given. For those who use well what they've been given, it says, they will be, even more will be given in the life to come. You can be trusted with more in heaven. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have, it will be taken away from them, just like this servant. This, this is the part in the story that it feels tough. The message version says it this way, and I love it. Uh, Natalie was just saying to this, uh, to, uh, about the message version before our gathering started. It says this, risk your life and get more than you dreamt of. Play it safe, and you'll end up holding the bag. See, uh, sometimes when I hear messages like this, especially when I was growing up, it just led to more self-loathing. Because <laughs> it's so easy for me to say, well, man, I, I think I'm the guy who put it under the bed. You know, I didn't take many risks for the kingdom of God. Or worse yet, what you've given me, God, I've used on myself. I mean, I'm not even using it to help others. I'm not even using it to build your kingdom. But I left out a verse here, and it's key to understanding how to process this story. You see, when that servant was brought before the king to give an account, and he had zero return on investment, he explains why to the king. He says this, Master, I hid your money 
and kept it, can you say it? Safe. And so much of many Christians' lives become about that. Stay safe. Hey, keep pure from the world. Play it safe. Uh, don't stay, stay inside your lines. Don't take big risks. Don't get too close to edges because you don't want to compromise and stuff. And a lot of that is good when it comes from a place of love and devotion. But for many Christians, it's motivated like it was for this guy. He said, what was his motivation to keep it safe? I was, say it with me, afraid. Fear. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. It's an interesting passage of scripture that, that is getting referenced there. And this person, is, he has a perspective and an expectation of the king that shapes his behavior. So he has this idea right away that he's not prepared to take any risks. He's going to live right inside the lines because the king, well, he's about judgment, justice, and anger. Judgment, justice, and anger. So he has a concept of that that makes it, I better not make a mistake. I'll just hide it. See, here's the thing, and what he missed, he has these misplaced expectations of who the king is. Anyone there? Is your faith journey more shaped around fear than it is love? Remember what scripture says, perfect love casts out all fear. You know, here's the truth. This man in the story saw the king as being angry. And the scripture describes God as being angry. Angry at all the brokenness and injustice in this world but it also balances that anger with love. This, this man saw his king as being judge, judging, and all, all of us will be judged someday for what we did with what we have. But what we forget sometimes is God is not just judging or judgmental, he's also merciful. And then sometimes we look at it and we can say, well, you know, he demands justice, and I, that made me nervous, but you're forgetting he also has grace in his other hand. For each of us. me see, I don't know what has shaped your expectation and impression of the kingdom of God and your impression of Jesus. For a lot of Christians I meet, it's been hard preaching and hard living. And it creates a concept of God that he's out to get you. He's out to, he knows what, almost like this, uh, you know, he knows when you've been naughty, he knows when you've been nice kind of thing. You know, he does know those things, but you've got to understand, what if you reframe this idea about God, that he's less out to capture you doing things you shouldn't do, and he's all about capturing your heart and lavishing his love upon you, and then from a place of love, you obey, not a place of fear. You can get quick compliance. I know uh, Shelly and I were talking about this passage this week, and, and I was saying, you know, we grew up in the same church, the same spiritual DNA and everything, lots of rules in our church. And there was a spectrum of people in our church, and I was on this side. I mean, I, I broke a lot of the rules. I wasn't a good church kid, and Shelly was a really good church kid. And I remember as we were adults, I was just saying, man, you live such a good life. I made so many poor choices. And she goes, Jonathan, it wasn't out of love. I'd love to say that I was motivated to make those choices because I love Jesus so much and I wanted to honor him, but it was fear. I was afraid of hell. I was afraid of this. I was afraid of that. And, and both of us were doing something that might have hurt the heart of God because it didn't come from a place of love. How loving is Jesus towards you? 
Well, to this crowd he's speaking to, he's about to go into Jerusalem and he's about to turn over the money changers' tables in the temple. He's about to celebrate his last meal, his last supper. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be denied. He's about to be crucified. And on the way into Jerusalem that day, the crowd, that very crowd would be shouting, Hosanna, Jesus, be our king. And within days, that message changed. It was more like what it says in chapter 19, verse 14, we do not want him to be our king. Why did the crowd, not everyone in the crowd, but why did the crowd change? Because of expectations. They expected he was coming into Jerusalem that day to rid the Romans, timing, to free Israel, expectation of scope. And Jesus came to do so much more. And he's trying to correct their idea of what the timing would look like. See, friends, it's an interesting story because in the story is a different type of king than in the parable. Story of Jesus. Listen, you can kill the king, Jesus, but you can't keep him in a grave. You, you can deny him, but you can't ignore him. You can say no to this king, but eventually every knee will bow to this king. In fact, it's quite a sobering statement that Jesus ends this parable with. He says this, and as for these enemies of mine, just like Archelaus, who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Now, Jesus is borrowing from the story of Archelaus, a familiar to help them understand the unfamiliar. But really, the best way to understand this verse is a lot like what Pete, Pastor Keith talked about last week. And if you missed last week, go back and listen to the message. That if we didn't want Jesus and his kingdom in this life, then God will not inflict it on anyone in the next life. We'll be separated from him. Separated from him. When Jesus is telling the story about the kingdom of God, they were interested in a temporary victory. They were thinking that Jesus is going to take care of things temporarily. See, they thought Jesus was going to end something when he went to Jerusalem, end the Roman Empire. But Jesus wasn't ending something. He was just starting something. Starting something that one day will note its completion when he returns from a distant land. As not, no longer, as we're celebrating over this Christmas season, the incarnation of the baby Jesus, clothed in human flesh, coming to live a life that you and I couldn't live, coming to die for all the brokenness and injustice in this life so that we could receive his record, not ours. Uh, no, no. When he returns, it won't be as a baby. It won't be as a lamb on a cross being slain. It will be as a victor and a lion. And he will come. He will come. And here's a great truth and a great thing that we need to keep always as followers of Jesus in our eyesight and in front of us. And you can trust this truth that someday Jesus will return. And when he does, he's going to ask each of us a simple question. The question will be, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? Well, I didn't have a lot. That's not the question. Uh, I, 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 I was afraid. Oh, but, but that's not about his, that's not the way his kingdom operates. What did you do with what he gave you? Just whatever it is, whatever it might be. Now, you might be sitting there going like, I don't like that question, Jonathan. And I'll be honest, I don't like that question either. 
Because it, it makes me automatically feel like, ah, uh, not enough. Listen, it's okay. It's okay if you messed up. It's okay if you've been too broken up. It's, too, it's okay if you've even given up. You know, the best time to, to be doing and sowing into the kingdom of God was when, you know, 20 years ago. The next best time is today. There's a new mercy for you and I each day. Think of it this way. I, and I, let, let me talk to our young adults right now. Just lean in, if you would, just for this closing minute. Hey, don't be afraid to take your shot. Take your shot with all that God has gifted you with, with your creativity and your energy and your, your dreams and your thoughts. But take your shot and for the glory of God, be the very best version of yourself. Go for it in this life. And, but make sure that as you're being the very best version of yourself, that you're doing it for the glory of God. How do you do it by, for the glory of God? You serve the people God places around you. You, whatever we do, we're about building into his kingdom. For some of you, taking your shot might look like inviting someone to join us at Alpha in January. It might look like uh, uh, being a part of our love army. And, you know, we're in the middle of that thank three challenge where you'll thank three people over the December season and make sure you text that in so we know and we, we can encourage other people. It might be a, when our Christmas Eve offering comes up, we're going to give, uh, I was able to give just even this last week towards it, but we're giving to a lot of organizations in the city of Toronto to help them out. You might want to use some of your resources to store up treasure in heaven, to invest in the kingdom of God. It might be just to serve anyone anywhere, anytime. It's not even serving on a team at the church. It's just serving the people that God has placed around you. Those are little ways that when Jesus says, what did you do with what I gave you? Maybe you'd be able to say with all authenticity in your heart, the very best I could, the very best I could, Jesus. I'd like to close our gathering by praying. I think there are some people that in this gathering, just like in previous ones this weekend, Maybe you want to be a follower of Jesus. You'd like to make a decision to follow Jesus. If you're, you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to encourage you, you know, think through this parable and allow it that you'd leverage what is temporary and you remember what is eternal will last forever. And as we experience hardship and difficulty in this life, we're not going to be thrown by that because we have an expectation that that's what this life is made of because sin has broken this world as God intended it to be. So it's not fair right now. But I know this, the kingdom of God, I'm praying that it, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have a job to do too. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when you created this world and you created every human, it was so you could lavish us with your love. And even when we determined to, to do our own thing, you, you sent your very best on a rescue mission for each of us. You sent Jesus. And as we celebrate over this Christmas season, he came to this earth vulnerable in human flesh. And he, he lived a life that we weren't able to, a perfect life. And he laid down his life for every human being, regardless of their race, their gender, their age, their socioeconomic background. For every human being, he laid down his life so that as we put our trust in him, we can be brought back into relationship with you, God, and be a part of the kingdom of God. So friends, if, if you want to follow Jesus, you just find yourself in this next part of the prayer.
Jesus, I come to you today as I would come before a king. I am not coming to negotiate. I'm coming to bow. I'm coming to surrender. Everything that you have blessed me with in this life, however small or a lot, today I recognize it all belongs to you. Would you forgive me of everything I've done that is either selfish or toxic? Anything that's hurt other people? Anything that's hurt your heart? Anything that's not been according to your kingdom, would you forgive me? And God, would you fill me with your spirit and would you lead me to live a life that looks like the kingdom of God? God, help me to serve the people around me. Help me to invest in eternal things. Help me to live a life that honors you. God, I just pray for the entire church family. Now, God, when we someday meet you face to face and we long for that day when you'll return, even how we've handled this season in COVID and this difficult season in this world, may we have done it in such a way that we bring glory to you, that people are looking to the person of Jesus. Help us to set appropriate expectations that are not self-centered, but they're centered on your kingdom and the things you wish to accomplish. We want your way, not our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, One Church. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.